going to call the meeting back to order. And we are on agenda item number five, return to public session. 5.1, announcement of items from closed session. We do have one item to announce. We hired by unanimous vote Michelle Mano as Interim Dean, Arts and Humanities. Okay, 5.2. Jennifer, would you lead us in the Pledge of Allegiance, please? Thank you. 5.3, adoption of the agenda. Any questions or comments on the agenda? None. Agenda is adopted as presented. Six has been removed. We move on to seven, public comment. At this time, we will devote a total of up to 15 minutes for comments to the Board of Trustees regarding any subject not appearing as an agenda item for this meeting, but over which the Board has jurisdiction. The public may ask the Board to place an item related to the business of the district on a future agenda. No action or discussion will occur at this time on any such items. Individuals will be limited to five-minute presentations. And at this time, it looks like I do have a couple of Comic cards, and we'll go in alphabetical order here with Cynthia Zekiner. Public comment is what it says. Sorry, I have a pretty loud voice, but I want to make sure. Hi. Uh, do you remember me, Cynthia Keener? I was here for several months previously. Okay. Um, it's good to see you again. Um, I hope you've had a wonderful summer. Um, first of all, I wanted to thank all of you, the board, um, for welcoming me back here. Thank you. I appreciate it. And thank you for keeping your eyes and ears open for um, regarding our concerns of deaf community. Uh, thank you for providing the wonderful interpreters. Um, who can interpret for me um, and for everybody here as well. Uh, I want to talk about Jennifer Lopes. Um, she was an instructor here, an ASL instructor here previously. Um, I've always heard wonderful things about her, her teaching style, um, how she's involved with the students, with the deaf community, going to different deaf events uh, like Deaf Pizza, Deaf Starbucks. Um, she would go there to encourage the students to communicate with the deaf community and um, ask them to learn more about our community. Um, she was very involved with our um, the deaf community itself and our friends. She was always an advocate. Um, I've never heard any negative things regarding her. Um, regarding her as a teacher, as a freelance interpreter. Um, she's been a huge support for the deaf and hard of hearing. Um, 
we never asked her to support us. It was within her heart to be compassionate to our community. Her knowledge um, was immense, and we could never understand why she was let go. I created a petition um, on change.org um, for a diverse group of people, deaf community, um, people who are aware of the deaf community, interpreters, um, agencies, you know, instructors, ASL instructors, etc., um, for oh, uh, NorCal Dakara. Uh, the Napa um, Valley College staff as well. Um, and I didn't get any response in regards to my requests of Napa. I had sent several emails and as well as telephone calls. Um, we have, Dakara and our community have not received any responses to our requests. And I wanted to discuss um, one moment, please. I wanted to discuss um, the response about hiring an ethical um, ASL instructors and. Um, the reason why I had made the petition was to inform the community and the college staff um, regarding best practice, as well as interpreters as well. Um, Kylie Kirkpatrick um, filed a suit against me for defamation of character and um, has told Basically, it feels that it's um, wrong for one moment, please. Is illegal to speak for or on behalf of a government agency or organization. Um, she has stated that Napa is planning on filing a suit. Napa College, that is. Um, against me. Um, I believe that this is extortion, which is why she filed a suit against me in June of 2016. Um, she wants me to pay $50,000 for a rogue, a rogue, I can't pronounce that, um, horrible behavior and being bullied and committed um, defamation of character and slander. The case is still ongoing and um, I'll be attending court again in October 2017. Um, she wants me to remove the petition and this is not something that I'm willing to do and I want to let you be aware of that. Um, because this does apply to the deaf and hard of hearing community as well as the college itself, um, I have to continue this process. Thank you.
Thank you. Cindy Water. Hi there. Um, last Sunday I was uh, out and about and I ran into Michael Baldini and it occurred to me I hadn't been down here in a while to give you all a hard time and uh, so here I am. Um, I'm actually here this time to uh, thank you for something. Uh, my son graduated from Napa Valley College in 2013. He was, uh, you know, remember the glory, that glorious year of Occupy Napa Valley College. That was my son. Um, he was uh, a bit of a rebel, an underachieving student in high school. Big reader, though. Um, and he came here and was, uh, did well, was accepted at several um you know, very good universities, chose UC Santa Cruz, from which he graduated summa in 2015. He also won several history prizes, uh, went on to get a master's of art in education, a secondary teaching credential, and he is teaching history down the coast today. And uh, thank you so much, Napa Valley College. He really found himself here, and it, it wasn't just a uh, it was certainly a team effort. Um, you have a Ms. Yanover in the English department who grabbed him, metaphorically speaking, by the scruff of his neck and made him uh, shape up his writing skills. And in you have a lot of good teachers, in particular three very inspirational teachers. Um, Ms. Badgett, art history, he adored that class, just loved that class, and um, she influenced him, continues to influence him, Mr. McGowan, the history teacher, um, my son just loved history, and um, uh, Goki in philosophy. Um, he, I believe he took her class the first semester, and he had not been in, in really in school for, um, except for uh, taking a black history class at City College of San Francisco where he got an A. That was about it for school for nine years. And he came back from this philosophy class and just was all agog, couldn't stop talking about it. So thanks a lot. Um, I've come down and, and mentioned in the past former students of mine from Napa High School who've come here and done well. And you all should be um, proud of yourselves because this college is so important to Napa Valley. Many, many of my students just don't have a lot of money. In fact, most parents, the way uh, four-year colleges have become so expensive, Napa Valley College is really a necessity. And you have enabled so many students to to enter the middle class, um, frankly. You know, they've come from very modest circumstances, and they've gone on to do great things. And I don't think enough people hear about it. Um, and, and I know that uh, I do know, actually, uh, this gentleman here has written a couple of columns about former students who've done well. I remember reading one, Doug, Mr. Ernst. But um, I think you do need to celebrate yourselves more. I mean, everybody from the very famous Marissa Castaneda, former student of mine, now um, finished a graduate degree at Harvard. But there are many, many more stories. I meet people in the winemaking community who have started businesses thanks to your um, viticulture courses here. So there's just, everybody has a different story. And um, I want to thank, I just really want to thank you for all the great work you do. All right, I know I have come down here and occasionally been critical, and I was thinking maybe that, maybe it's like past time for me to come down with a heartfelt thank you for what you've done, certainly for my family and also for my students. So keep it up. And you've got great, 
teachers here. Thank you for sharing that. Are there other members in the public that would like to speak for public comment? Seeing none, public comment is closed. We're down to item 8, constituent group reports, 8.1, Amanda Badgett, Academic Senate. Good evening, good evening, board. And thank you, Cindy Waters. That was lovely. Uh, tonight, I want to say a few words uh, regarding what the Senate has actually undertaken this fall. And you may have heard about it. Um, we are entering into a two-year pilot regarding committee restructuring. And this came at the recommendation of the IEPI team, who came and visited us last, first in November and then in February. And based on those meetings, we heard the following from this team composed of administrators and faculty. Simplify, engage, communicate, integrate. So the Academic Senate took this to heart, and we formed a work group of our Senate exec. And we decided to take those objectives and apply it to the way we do business on this campus. So we have reduced the number of our committees from 10 to 5, and they are the Faculty Business Committee, Student Success Standards, Planning and Budget Joint Committee, Curriculum, and fa Faculty Coach, which were pre-existing. The intention here is to get all the right people in the room, faculty, classified administrators, who together can shape and drive the revision of policy and regulation. In the previous iteration, one policy would kind of load around three or four committees and it'd go over here. And so we, we have endeavored to kind of condense for the sake of efficiency. Each committee is divided into work groups that tackle a discrete task, a particular policy, or process. Small groups are more efficient, they're more nimble, and they bring a work product back to the parent committee. From there, that work product gets distributed among the classified Senate, administrative Senate, and division reps that take that to the various academic divisions. So essentially, what we're trying to do is engage our constituents and all constituents on this campus with the work that we do. And, um, and in that effort, we are also trying to develop more efficient meetings. Each of these committees is hoping, perhaps, and some have already, um, tagged somebody to be parliamentarian, keep them on task, as well as a kind of shadow or chair in training so that those of us who reach the end of our tenure and our leadership can step down <laughs> and hand it very gladly and confidently to the next group. So with any, as with any pilot, there are going to be glitches and unforeseen problems, um, but, and it is early days. But I'm gratified to work with colleagues who are willing to do something different. And that's what we heard from that IEPI team back in November of last year. 
I want to give a special thanks to Faye Smiley, Shauna Bynum, Michael Gianvecchio, and, though not here right now, the VPI, Eric Shearer, for supporting us on the administrative side. Thank you. Thank you. 8.2, Administrative Confidential Senate Report, Ken Arnold. Good evening. Uh, the semester is is up and going, and we are um, at the Council of Presidents also trying to help support the change in uh, in committees, and we appreciate the, the smaller structure of committees as well. Uh, other than uh, having our ongoing meetings, uh, the couple things that we will be doing on October 20th, we're going to do a winery afternoon, so if you happen to be and, uh, around and want to just stop by for social. It's uh, about three 3.30 to 5, and we're just sort of uh, having just an administrative little uh, breather there for us. at the. Uh, and then we'll also have a suitable, uh, I can never remember what Robin calls it, but suitable non-alcoholic beverages are also available uh, on the 20th that night. Other than that, just uh, regular stuff going on. Thank you. 8.3, Associated Students of Napa Valley College, Rafael Manzo. Thank you. Uh, good evening, board. Uh, so the ASNBC uh, successfully hosted their first fireside chat event um, in uh, August. As previously reported, the theme for the August event was uh, LGBTQ plus dialogues, and the panel of speakers was comprised of discipline experts uh, and service providers, two of them from on-campus and two from local organizations. Uh, due to some further planning, the September fireside chat has been postponed to October 10th. So um, it, from 6 to 8.30 p.m., same time, in the uh, Performing Arts Center here on campus. Uh, in essence, there will be no fireside chat in September, rather uh, just one in, uh, in October next. And then we will continue to plan for a November fireside chat event as well. Uh, the theme for the now October fireside chat is mental health dialogues. Um, and so uh, we're talking to local groups like, of course, Mentis and uh, Aldea, as well as um, our director of student health services here on campus, uh, Nancy Tamarisk. Um, Constitution Day is this Sunday. Um, our senator of inclus inclusivity, uh, Brandon Gamoris, held a, a small table event in front of the library engaging students this morning. Uh, handing out pocket-sized copies of the con U.S. Constitution, as well as uh, resources for DACA students. Uh, we want to keep that going on as well. And um, I know I'm uh, I'm having my constituents look over all of the BPs and ARs that are uh, due soon for uh, Council of Presidents, of course, um, doing our, our duty as uh, shared governance. And I lastly just want to say um, that it is Suicide Prevention Week, and uh, and and so uh, I just want to encourage us all to uh, please check in with people that you people that you care uh, you care about people that you are concerned about um, and generally just be very open to anyone that you interact with um, and just ask if you can how are you how are you doing um, sometimes we have uh, really good coping mechanisms so we are able to mask what we are truly struggling with so please just um, be open remain open. And, uh, you know, because taking a minute can really save a life. And really, every day is the right day to do that sort of thing, to check in with people. But I do think that commemorative months and 
heritage months, nationally national commemorative months are a good thing. I think it's good to get the entire nation or the entire world on the, the same page for something good. So, um, yes, uh, and I'm a, I'm a strong advocate for, for, for this and for mental health-related causes and such. So we're really looking forward to, again, that fireside chat in October, October 10th. And, um, yeah, that's, that's my report. Thank you. Raphael, hmm? see what I keep in my purse? <laughs> Looks like a very tattered, very used, uh, looked over and probably highlighted uh, pocket constitution. <laughs> oh, and thank you, Trustee Baker, for um, sending me that invitation via email for another LGBTQ plus related event that's coming up uh, in a week or two, right, uh, downtown and, uh, at the district building here in Napa. Thank you. Thank you. 8.4, Classified Association Report, Jan Chart. Not here. <laughs> 8.5, Classified Senate Report, Michael Rayford. He stepped out for just a moment. I, I thought I saw him. Yeah, he said, I'll be right back. Let's uh, back. flip it around. 8.6, uh, Faculty Association Report, Christy Womoto. Good evening, everyone. I'm glad to be back with you again. I was unfortunately out of town for uh, some meetings over the summer. I was in uh, Boston, actually, and I was representing uh, our uh, California's Teachers Association in Boston for a week-long representative assembly that we had with our National Education Association. Um, we are back, and faculty is refreshed, most, most of us. We are optimistic about the coming year. Uh, we were really excited. We had our first uh, general association meeting this afternoon, and we were able to welcome some of our new faculty, and we've been really excited to, uh, to welcome all new full and part-time faculty to the fold. And uh, we actually are going to be having our first meeting between the district and faculty association negotiators next week. So not a lot to report yet. We haven't had our meeting yet, but we're looking forward to it, and uh, and we are just hoping for the greatest things to come. Thank you. Thank you. And no uh, Michael yet. So we're going to move on. Number nine, Superintendent President Report. Dr. Kraft? Yeah, thank you. And when Michael comes back, we can jump back to that. That's okay. A um, couple things. I've, I've submitted a report. A couple pieces on, on my report that I'd like to just draw our attention to. Um, unless you've been in a Total vacuum. Um, you will have heard something in terms of DACA and the recent kind of swirl of activity around that. Um, um, I've reported that here um, in in my comments tonight. Also, I've posted our, our statement on our, on our college position, which we released to the to the community and and the stakeholders here, which basically reaffirmed the safety and security of our students on campus and let them know that we're um, you know, we're here for them. Um, I'm also um, gratified that the board of trustees, you know, um, in, in a few months past also um, made that same kind of commitment. Uh, the chancellor's office is, is um, pretty lit up, I think, with, um, with this kind of information. And as we all heard a bit, it looks like there may be some pending legislation coming out of D.C., which is, which is hopeful. So... Um, who knows how it goes? The, the bottom line for us is that we are here for our DACA students. They are a, a significant and very important part of our future here, and we're committed to um, supporting them. A um, little different 
here. There, the, the, where it says state, the accrediting commission for ACCJC for community colleges has had two work groups working on accreditation for the past couple years. One of those significant charges of work group two, to which I belong, along with other CEOs, about 40 of us, was to pursue a long-range model to structure for regional accreditation that aligns with the segments of higher education in the Western region. What that really means is California is fairly unique in having a two-tiered system of an ACCJC for the community colleges and a WASC senior, if you will, for the universities. Um, Overwhelmingly, the CEOs in work group two and generally across the board in California, this will come forward pretty soon, have endorsed the concept to move to a single accreditor in California, which would be WASC Senior. Um, and that would take place over the next decade as excuse me, <coughs> as um, accreditation rolls um, into view for each college. Um, as you know, it does not affect us. We just completed our last review, did well with ACCJC. We have a mid-year report in 19 that's moving forward. So nothing will change for us for years to come, but you will see some updated information on this moving forward. It's not a given yet. Um, it has to be adopted. And the reason I'm bringing it up here, it's the board's decision. It is a local decision that with high consultation between faculty senates, um, the administrative group, the students, and the board, so all those will be taken into consideration in the future um, when that comes to us. Um, but um, don't hold your breath. It's it's a ways out, but it's good to just kind of be aware. Um, let's see. Silverado Baseball um, is um, uh, on the way. Um, we signed a letter of intent with the, with the Napa Silverado's Baseball Club to, um, to move forward with their planning so far um, to field a team that would be a professional team that would utilize our field. So it's basically a long-term facilities um, enhancement and, and um, lease, if you will. Um, more coming on that, but um, you'll see um, different pieces, and we'll probably have them back in here um, to present um, through the lens of our, base, our, our local baseball team um, here at the college and also with some community folks to talk about the next steps for that. That, again, won't happen until next summer, so it, it's just kind of a long-range plan. And finally, there's a little little blurb here on South Valley Campus. We've been talking about South Valley Campus, which is American Canyon High School. Just a couple things on it. We, we are now, um, um, Student Affairs has done a really wonderful job, and they have a team counseling staff that is assigned. Um, there's testing and assessment are now conducted on site down there. And then we have classroom instruction that covers sections in non-credit ESL, credit classes in humanities, math, and sociology. So, and we expect that to be an emerging center and um, one that will be popular to relieve the traffic congestion up here and also to um, serve our you know, American Canyon folks. Um, just a reminder, we, we have, I believe, um, Napa Valley Board of Trustees um, videos, including as tonight's operating, yeah. Um, so you can go to those videos. Um, you should be able to scroll to a particular portion and see your smiley face and, um, and watch the action. 
also, I would um, encourage us all, since we're now doing videos, to speak directly into the mic. Because when you turn your voice like this and talk like that, absolutely nothing is coming through on this right now. So it's important for to remind us all to do that. So that was my public service announcement, um, Cynthia. Thank you. Um, with that, I would like um, to call on um, Ginny Humphreys. Uh, she is the uh, vice president of the uh, Napa Valley College Foundation to, um, to report. Welcome, Ginny. Can I ask a clarifying question about this report first? Sure. I was just wondering Sergeant. about, um, thank you for getting the videos up and running. I guess there's three months that are up there are. at this point. Yeah, I think it's three months. So um, that's great. Thank you. Um, I was just wondering, um, absent that we were doing the audio recordings on Napa Broadcasting, and now that we have these videos up, and post it on our own site. Um, is there a plan to discontinue that? Or I think we, we had agreed that? that we would do a redundancy for a bit. I'm, I'm not complete. That's why I asked the question. I'm not completely satisfied that the video solution is one that we can count on yet. So we're going to do a redundancy for at least another three or four months and make sure that we're in good shape, and then we can re, re, retool that. Yes. Yes. There's all those a huge demand for streaming of this video. People are clamoring. But um, so, Ginny, thank you. Good evening. Uh, I'll try to talk into the microphone. Uh, on the board, one of our priorities for this upcoming year is to expand the number of board members that we have, and we would like to invite any members of the board to um, nominate um, candidates. If you have someone in mind, I think the best way is to get in touch with our new executive director, Ann Branch. I introduced Ann Branch to you last month, and she unfortunately can't be here tonight, but she would be the best one uh, to contact with any candidates that you might have. We are seriously looking for new people. Um, overall, Ann has been working very hard since she joined us in, in July. She's working on our uh, strategic development plan, and we understand that you are as well. And we want you to know that we will work with you in any areas that will be mutual beneficial as um, both of these uh, endeavors go forward. Secondly, our uh, capital plan is also being worked on, and we submitted a $30,000 letter of request to the Gasser Foundation for uh, the planning and sustainability of our capital plan, which is the VWT, the, the um, Viticulture and Wine Technology. <laughs> Ron shaking his head. I did it right this time. Anyway, we should hear back in November whether we can and get some money from the Gasser Foundation. And thirdly and lastly, uh, not only is it your 75th anniversary, but it is our 50th anniversary and we are going to have some sort of celebration, not sure yet. But Anne is working with Scott Allen to um, create a 50th anniversary logo for us. And um, just as a matter of interest, we now have about $8.6 million in our account. Thank you. Any questions? Thank you, Jim. Um, we can move to public information if you're okay. Oh, Michael is back. I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, that would be oh. a, a chair. Okay, well, let's uh, interrupt this for 
a minute and go back to 8.5 to the classified Senate report. Michael Rayford. Okay, my name is Michael Rayford, and uh, at our last class meeting, classified meeting, we had uh, did a pizza and salad celebration at the, and uh, that's about it. Thank you, Dr. Kraft. Thank you, and I would say that that the classifieds Halloween contest is the highlight of October, so we we're looking forward to that. Um, oh, I yeah. also want to say that uh, we're going to be working with the. That's true. So let me amend my remarks. The, the classified and associated students of Napa Valley College Halloween event is unbelievable. <clears throat> so, um, Doug, um, are you ready? Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you, board, for having me up here again. The uh, <clears throat> monthly clipping service is just, it's just full of positive news. I just encourage you to take a look at it, especially the article that appeared in the register about the history of Napa Valley College, 75 years. It quoted everybody that um, has something important to say about the college. It was just an outstanding article, and um, I want to thank the register for that. But more than that, um, I'd really like to encourage you to talk to your constituents. You're on the front lines, you board, you board members, and they come up to you maybe sometimes with, hey, you know, the college ought to write about, or I'm curious about this, or I've got a story idea. Sort of like uh, what Cindy just gave about five story ideas, and Marianne gave me a story idea today. Your constituents can give that to you also, and if, if there's a, a way I can encourage you to go onto the uh, OIA page, uh, there's now a, a public information officer button to push. It's called news. You push it, you get a little uh, click here, and there's a, a form to fill out if you have a story idea. You tell me your story idea, you tell me your name and phone number, and we call you and we do a story, um, or at least we look into it. So encourage your um, your constituents to call me and uh, get your uh, get your stories out there because I really... I really think that the community and the college can make a, a strong bond together. Sure. Make a comment. Um, it's not in this report, but I just wanted to say that I appreciate the new newsletter that's going out to the staff that you're putting together. Wow, the Campus Bulletin. Campus Bulletin. I appreciate the efforts to communicate more with the college constituents. You know, the, the, the people uh, here at the college are very, very cooperative. They submitted their their stories, and, and they're just great. So uh, thank you to the staff for that. Thank you, Doug. Um, let's move to cabinet reports, and maybe I'll start with Bob, and you may have some intros as well. So if you'll bear with me, I just wanted to take this opportunity to introduce the two newest members of the Administrative Services family here at Napa Valley College. You hired them at the August board meeting. They showed up for work last week, and, and they keep coming back. So, so um, we're very excited about that. So Eric and Joe, could you join me up here? So our, our first victim is uh, first victim is Eric Halk, 
He is our new director of institutional technology. Eric holds a Bachelor of Arts in Computer Science from Seattle Pacific University and a Master of Science in Management and Leadership from Western Governors University. He has spent the last 10 years, it is 10 years, right, working at, um, at College of the Siskiyous up in Weed and his uh, last, that's not funny, and his, <laughs> his, uh, his, just a little bit, yeah, his uh, last position at College of the Siskiyous was Interim Director of Information Technology, and so I'd invite Eric to say a few words about how wonderful it is to be a member of the Administrative Services family here at Napa Valley College. That was quite the lead, I'm sure. Uh, I just want to thank the board for the opportunity to be here at uh, Napa Valley College. Uh, I am thankful for many things, one of which is not having to spell Siskiyous on my email address anymore. Um, but no, it's, it's been a, a really warm welcome uh, from everyone I've, I've talked to here uh, Everyone I've, I've met is very eager and excited to, to see me and to see a director in IT, uh, which is then usually followed by a request for something. Uh, but that's not to be unexpected, and I'm, I'm just uh, really glad to get my feet on the ground and have already begun meeting uh, a lot of the staff and faculty uh, and have been invited to participate in many, many uh, gatherings and uh, committees, et cetera. And so uh, it's been really nice to be here, and I thank you for the opportunity. I feel like we should I, clap. <laughs> I, I, would also, I would also like to point out that that Joe is now the junior because he started one day after me. <laughs> so I am not the newest employee here at Napa Valley as well. So. That's right. Eric was only the new guy for one day, so <laughs> we we couldn't we we couldn't pick on him for very long. Joe, however, all bets are off. But so. Joe Latunsky, who is a CPA, um, holds a Bachelor of Arts in Accounting from Michigan State University and a Master in Business Administration from Saginaw Valley State University, also in Michigan. He spent about five years working in public accounting, where he audited uh, K-12 districts in Michigan. Um, he also spent some years as a financial analyst at Next Tier Automotive, also in Michigan, where he um, implemented or worked on implementing a new health benefits payroll system and employee retirement plans system. And most recently, he has been an accounting manager at SIR Industries just across the street from us. So we're very happy to have Joe with us, and hopefully Joe will have as many nice things to say about Napa Valley College as uh, Eric did. So. <laughs> Thank you, and thank you, board. Uh, I greatly appreciate how quickly everybody acted. Honestly, um, last month it was it was a blessing. Uh, the day after, I believe I interviewed, I had already been approved, and that is uh, that is very rewarding. Um, I'm excited for the opportunity. Uh, I have met nothing but great people so far, um, and like Eric had said, there. It, it's usually initial excitement with uh, a lot of requests. So, um, um, and what Eric had mentioned previously isn't entirely true. He was not here a day. He was present a day earlier, but we both started on the same day. So <laughs> technically speaking, we're equals. But um, 
No, I, I'm truly blessed. My family and I moved here a couple years ago to Napa. I followed my wife. Uh, she is a assistant professor at Toro University. She's a physician. And uh, I took my time finding work because um, it wasn't as, as immediately necessary. Um, and we've, we call Napa home. Uh, we love Napa Valley. Uh, we try to be as active in the community as we possibly can. I know I sit on the board for COPE. Um, I'm a very active member there, and my wife, as active as she can be, um, but we do. We, we really enjoy the people and the community, and I'm excited to get hit the ground running here at Napa Valley College. Thank you. So thank you for the opportunity to introduce Eric as our new Director of Institutional Technology and Joe as our new controller. That concludes my report. Thank you. Thank you. Eric, I think you just got audited, too, there. It was like, wham, wham. Um, Charo, thank you. Good evening. We began our classification compensation study for the classified administrators and confidential group. The vendor, EMS, Educational Management Systems, um, is the vendor that you all approved on um, June the 22nd at that board meeting. They visited our campus during the week of August the 22nd and met with representatives from respective job families um, in inf employee information sessions to gain information about particular details regarding um, individuals' job descriptions, which is a part of the process. They'll return back to our campus on October the 3rd and 4th to meet with supervisors to review that information. We've also kicked off open enrollment. Um, open enrollment is a period of time for all employees who are eligible for our health benefits to review their options and sign up for other options. We had an open enrollment fair yesterday, September the 13th, um, and it was well attended. Um, our open enrollment period will be from September the 11th through October the 6th. Also, I mentioned this before, I'd like to mention it again, we will hold an internal job fair, Napa Valley College job fair, um, with the hopes of attracting talented individuals who are interested in teaching for us, both on a part-time basis as well as full-time basis, as, long, as well as our classified positions and administrative positions. This job fair will be held on December the 1st in the community room, um, right now, we are tentatively having the schedule from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. I encourage all volunteers, we're looking for volunteers, but more importantly, if you know individuals, talented individuals who have a passion for education, encourage them to attend this job fair. Thank you. That concludes my report. Thank you. Oscar, VP. Oscar, I'm not sure that's on. Is it on? I'm sorry. There you go. Thank you. There are a couple of things that I, that I would like to uh, highlight, and that is uh, thanks to Michelle Mano. Uh, last month, I was able to, to take a tour of, of two agencies that our college works with very closely to assist our uh, development dis disabled students. Uh, that One of them is Napa Valley uh, Support Services and PSI. And I was very impressed by, by, uh, by the workings of these two agencies. 
And I was also very impressed in, in the communication and the networking that we have with, with Abilene College and, and, and them. So I want to thank Michelle for the opportunity. Also, this, this is the, the start of, of the season for, for Napa College bringing on the campus uh, college reps. We have UC Davis, Berkeley, and, and, and also other colleges reps that will be assisting our students with guiding them in uh, knowing or uh, learning what they need to, to transfer to, to respective schools. Um, it's also the start of the season where, where the college, uh, through city affairs, starts to visit other, other campuses, other, other high schools. Uh, we've been invited to at least two or three college fairs and family nights that, that we'll be attending. Um, and also it's a season where it, uh, local schools ask us for a tour of, of our campus. So uh, on the 29th, we're going to have New, New Tech High School with, with 40 students. And in general, uh, student affairs is off to, to, to a good start. Uh, another big highlight is that last week we had our transfer fair where over 50 colleges and, and universities were, were present. We had several schools who were here from our local area uh, who transported uh, the their students here, so we had a very, very nice crowd. The weather was a bit damp, I guess, but, uh, but that did not dampen the spirits of, of, of the students and, and the reps. And uh, also, with, with reference to I mean, DACA, Dr. Kraft, uh, we are currently scheduling for the 23rd of this month, which is next Saturday, a, uh, a DACA um, session where students can, uh, can renew their, their application because with the current thing that stands, they have to renew their, their applications by October the 1st. So we're hosting that on the 23rd uh, in, in the student activities uh, room, center, uh, from 9 to 2 o'clock. And lastly, there's, uh, I believe that uh, Sally Nichols and Jim McGowan were, were here with you about three months ago or so that shared a bit about a historical event that's, that's taking place here at Navalley College or through Navalley College. And that is that the Smithsonian, Smithsonian uh, Institute in, in Washington has this uh, this traveling uh, this this traveling exhibit traveling uh, exhibit El Bracero program, which is which is also in its it's celebrating its seventieth year seventieth year of existence. And it's again it's a guest worker program that that was established between the governments of Mexico and and, and the United States. And it's something that actually truly brought a great amount of. Uh, of richness to, to this county in, in particular because many of Braceros worked here in, in Napa County. Um, and so uh, Napa, Napa County is a host of the last leg or the last showing of the exhibit, and we are partnering with the Napa Valley Museum, which is located in Yonville. Um, and so it's going to be here through November 12th. So I encourage everyone to please t- take a look at it. There's, an, uh, there's a section there within, within the exhibit that pertains specifically to the Napa County uh, Braceros and and the and the contributions of those individuals uh, here, um, and on October the uh, the first, there's an activity that's being sponsored through, through Napa College. I'm sure that I didn't, I, I didn't bring in enough for everyone, but uh, it's an activity. It's it's a presentation at at the museum October the first, um, where we will be celebrating the local uh, the local. I guess the relatives or grandchildren, the, the relatives of those who are still here, of Braceros who, who once uh, worked here and, and are currently living. We have counted six. Uh, they're all in their 90s. Um, and, uh, and this is a very special event. Uh, and that's October the 1st at the museum from 1 to 4 o'clock, or I think 1 to 5 o'clock. So, again, I encourage you. It's free. Yeah, please uh, stop by and acknowledge or see the history of this, uh, that, this, that this county has uh, as a result of, of the workmanship of, of, of Braceros from 75 years ago. Thank you. Thank you, Oscar. 
Uh, yeah, I plan on being there. And um, one one p.m. right Sunday. Yes, one one to five. Wonderful. And you said on October first as what, what's the um, student center? What's the date for the oh, students? Twenty third. Twenty third. That's next Saturday. Thank you. Twenty third. Good. We'll make sure that that gets out as well again, and probably already is. Um, that is my report. Thank you. All right, we're down to item 10, approval of minutes. 10.1 is being pulled off the agenda. Uh, we'll move on to 10.2, minutes of the August 10th, 17th regular meeting. Is there any comment or question about minutes? We're not, you're not going to pull both of them to be proofread? No, I believe that, I think, I, I, we had a, a, the draft minutes for 713 were the ones we had in question, and we found some errors on those, so we're going to work on those. But I believe the minutes in 10.2, the 8107 are okay. Can right? I just look at them for a second? Because <laughs> they aren't something that we can approve just with the amendments or with the corrections. Oh. <laughs> okay, so then I just want to make a correction on if we're going to approve the August ones, then um, item 10, information discussion items. I just want to make a correction Ronald Craft instead of Robert Craft. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Anything else? Yeah, I, yeah I don't, I'm not sure about anything else. So I'm, I'm fine with the rest. Okay. Anybody else? Is there a, a motion to approve? I'll, move. I'll second. <laughs> no second. Here we have a first and a second. All in favor, please say yes. Aye. Aye. Yes. Abstain, I was not here. Okay, item 11, information discussion items, 11.1, campus housing. And I note that we do have a card for a speaker, uh, Esperanza Padilla. Hello. Well, thank you for saying my name. I guess I don't have to introduce myself. Okay. Well, yeah, I will. I'm Esperanza Padilla, so, you know, I'm not the doppelganger. And basically, yeah, I'm here to voice my support for a, a campus here, the house, uh, campus housing here at NBC because I think as a student it's important I uh, share my views on that because I can inside perspective into how the region's housing affects the students here currently or even prospective students in the future. Um, so I'm in support of the ca uh, campus housing project for a number of reasons. Uh, firstly, I want to say it's because I can see how it can uh, provide accommodations uh, that students need to prefer their high, uh, pursue their higher education that they need in order to acquire a career. Uh, this is especially helpful for students that just so happen to have an additional responsibility, like, say, being a mother or a father, and who have to, you know, go to school part-time, work part-time, and be a full-time parent as well. Uh, secondly, I, I think it would highly benefit uh, students who live outside, you know, commuting bounds who would like to go to NVC, but just they can't afford to commute here back and forth from wherever they live. Uh, and, and running up to that, uh, thirdly, I would like to say that I think 
this would especially help students that are financially insecure uh, based upon, you know, my own troubles at attending school. And I think it would help uh, students that have a consistent financial insecurity uh, that stems from their own uh, housing insecurity or a lack of housing, I should say. And, you know, this is California. Uh, and, of course, uh, applying to that would also be veterans who also have had trouble with the uh, you know, consistent uh, financial security with their adjustments back in civilian life. Uh, lastly, I just want to um, conclude just with the potential benefits with this as well, that uh, campus housing could provide in the future for NVC as well, because campus housing will essentially prove to benefit the school itself and the community at large, because it would uh, provide these students the opportunity and uh, to pursue their higher education and get the training they need for a job which will then, of course, come back and uh, benefit NBC as well because, uh, you know, either by just the merit of it, from the word of mouth, this would help uh, influence the campus's uh, image, or it could, you know, help as in they'll want to come back and work here and maybe work in the community as well. So in that way, it, you know, it's not just a charity case. You are going to, you know, uh, get some benefit from this as well as a college. So that's basically what I want to conclude here, and thank you for letting me speak. Thank you. Board Chair, when was the support document uploaded? Because I prepared for this meeting yesterday and today, and I didn't see a document there. I don't know. Today? Do you know? Do you know what time it was posted today? I don't. Okay, so I move that we postpone discussion of this item until we can review the document and the public can review the document. Uh, what is the document? It would be the. It's, I think this is the presentation by the the informational presentation by. So the, I move to postpone until we can review the document and the public can review the document because I don't see how we can have an enlightened discussion when we haven't reviewed the document and the public's been deprived of the opportunity to review it and comment as well. Mr. Chair, isn't it a presentation? It's Not a presentation, is what I was going to say. This okay. is their presentation they're bringing to us right now. Right, but there might have been people, had they known that that was going to be presented, who might have wanted to come. I specifically know, for example, Mr. Orton, who's been diligent in following this topic and coming and commenting, didn't come tonight specifically because he thought nothing specific was going to be presented. So, you know, it's depriving the public with the opportunity to comment, but also we haven't read it and couldn't do our own research as well. So... Anyway, I... You've made a motion. I move to postpone this discussion. Is there a second on the motion? There is no second. The motion dies. Please proceed. Okay, thank you. Um, thank you. Um, campus housing is a um, has been ongoing and kind of a thoughtful process for the past couple years. Um, tonight, we've asked Alfred Beatty, and they're, they're the recommended selected finalists through our, our process, to present... Um, their qualifications, this is from our, our description, um, and their um, their qualifications and ideas based on the RFQ, and, and they're here to answer some questions tonight as well. Um, they're part of a, um, again, I'm going to say slow and prudent process that we are trying to uh, unpack a little bit. Bob, I don't know if you want to add more in here in terms of the process, in terms of what we went through. Well, so we first issued the RFQ a number of months ago, and we sent the RFQ to a group of um, uh, project managers and potential developers based on research that we had done on campus housing throughout the country. 
Interestingly enough, Balfour Beatty was not one of those um, organizations, but rather a partner that they have worked with locally was one of those organizations. And so we then held a an information session, had a number of groups come uh, to learn more about the college, learn more about the project. Balfour Beatty was one of those uh, groups that came. And we received three responses, formal responses, to the RFQ. We interviewed all three of those uh, uh, potential project managers, and uh, the staff is recommending that um, we work with Balfour Beatty Campus Solutions. Thank you. And I, and I could add that after our interviews, which were, um, thank you so much, you did obviously a good job, or you wouldn't be here tonight, and we'll introduce you. Um, the um, We met the staff met with the ad hoc subcommittee to present our um, reflections and go over our our kind of recommendations, and there were questions and answers in that session as well. Um, and um, tonight, maybe you self-introduce, and that would be helpful for us. Sure. And very happy that you're here. Welcome. Great. Well, uh, thank you, members of the board, uh, Dr. Kraft and Mr. Parker, and members of the Napa Valley College community. Um, we're very excited to be here today. I'm Josh Smith, Senior Vice President with Balfour Beatty Campus Solutions. Uh, my colleague, Sam Jung, uh, Vice President with Balfour Beatty Campus Solutions, is also here with me today. Um, we're very excited to be here. You know, this is a very transformational opportunity for this campus to become a 24-hour day, seven-day-a-week uh, living, breathing campus. Um, it's something that a number of community colleges across the country are, are looking at doing. And we're here today simply to talk about our firm, who we are, um, and give a little bit of glimpse into process. And as Dr. Kraft mentioned, it is a process to explore. We want to spend a lot of time with the board, with faculty and staff, with the students, and really make sure that this is the right opportunity for this campus. Um, again, it, it's something that as, as uh, was it Esmeralda? Esperanza, I'm sorry, Yes. Um, said, you know, there, there's a lot of proven research about the benefits of, of on-campus living, but it doesn't make sense for every campus. So I'm not here today to convince you to build student housing. I'm here simply to say that it's an option. So with that being said, um, Balfour Beatty is a global organization. We're publicly traded on the London Stock Exchange. Um, Balfour Beatty Campus Solutions is a part of Balfour Beatty Investments. Uh, we specialize in public-private pri public partnerships nationally. Uh, we're one of the largest owner-operators of on-base military housing in the U.S. Um, the group that I represent, Campus Solutions, we specialize in uh, campus projects. So whether it's student housing, academic buildings, uh, recreation and sports, et cetera, um, we really specialize in mission-driven partnerships. So um, we don't uh, build our own off-campus. Um, all of our campus projects are purely on-campus in partnership with a university. We're a fully integrated firm. Um, as Mr. Parker mentioned, uh, we are offering to partner locally uh, with Brown Construction and Mogovera Architects out of Sacramento, uh, who we have experience with and they have experience together um, before. Balfour Beatty Communities, um, as I was talking about, um, is obviously one of the largest owner-operators in the U.S. Uh, we have about 50,000 units nationally, uh, which includes 120,000 beds. Uh, 2,000 units operated in California. Um, we're very flexible in the way that we structure our partnerships, uh, a number of different financing-type solutions. 
uh, including one that, that was in the RFQ, as well as a number of other options. And uh, if we're able to move forward, you know, we would look forward to sitting down with the board and others as, as you see fit to go through those options and talk a little bit more uh, about what each brings to the table. Uh, just a little glimpse into some of the projects that we've delivered nationally. Uh, we've built from coast to coast, uh, community colleges to four-year universities. Uh, we've done graduate, faculty, staff housing, undergraduate, uh, and every type of, of living arrangement. Um, in, I'll let Sam here talk here in a second, but um, each one is very unique. You know, uh, there's really not a one-size-fit-all approach and it's really important that you get it right at the start. And so, you know, doing our due diligence and, again, having a very uh, integrated approach, very collaborative approach um, with, uh, with the board and the, and the local community. So with that being said, um, I will hand it over to Sam. Uh, good evening, and uh, thank you for your time. Really appreciate uh, the opportunity to share a little bit about us and a little bit about uh, public-private partnerships for on-campus housing. Um, I actually personally come from the, uh, I would say, development manager, P3 advisor um, background. I actually used to advise higher education clients um, in, in this process uh, on the other side. Uh, Josh actually brought me on because he actually hated negotiating against me. So, <laughs> but we have a little bit of history there. But, you know, I, I, I say that because what's in front of you is a little bit of a complicated chart. Um, it's what we call a spaghetti chart talking about what the partnership may look like. Um, this is one structure that we can consider in partnership, but there are obviously a whole, whole host of other partnerships we can uh, look at as well. Because we are 100% focused on on-campus partnerships, we are completely agnostic to how you guys want to tailor the, the partnership moving forward. Um, but just in quick summary, the taxes and financing structure is one that was outlined in the RFQ. Um, we think that it's a great structure for public-private uh, partnerships in uh, community colleges. When I work with public um, two-year institutions across the country, this is actually the most preferred structure, primarily because it, it provides you with the lowest borrowing cost of capital, which um, obviously helps with student affordability. And the benefit of this structure is that um, the university or the college actually receives all of the cash flows of the project. So we, as Balfour Beatty, really don't have any upside in the transaction. We provide a, we, we essentially act as a fee developer in this scenario, as a kind of a program manager type role. Um, and the ongoing relationship and the partnership is really around um, our management services uh, related to uh, the student life aspects, to facilities management and operations. Um, but as I mentioned, uh, we have no upside in this kind of a transaction. All of the money goes back to the institution for the betterment of the institution, uh, for um opportunities such as um, advancing affordability uh, initiatives that um, are very important for two-year institutions. Uh, just a quick summary, as, as Josh mentioned, uh, when we did submit this, um, our proposal, we did partner with uh, two local firms, uh, Brown Construction and Mogavera, both based out of Sacramento. They have um, extensive experience in higher education, um, student housing, and we certainly lean on them as local experts in the California uh, student housing realm. As, as, as you probably saw in the previous slide, um, none of our housing looked the same, and that's done with intention. We, we've, we really focus on delivering um, a student housing project that's of this place and that's reflective of um, the area that it's around. And so we would certainly focus um, on trying to deliver a project that, that represents Napa 
uh, with certainly with a lot of feedback from the students, the associate students, the cabinets, um, as well as the stakeholders in this room, because we, we certainly believe that stakeholder engagement and feedback are absolutely critical in making sure that this project um, is, is realized in the way that you have envisioned from day one. With that said, just a quick um, kind of trends in community colleges. This was actually surprising to me as we were doing research. Uh, Twenty-eight percent of community colleges across the country actually offer on-campus housing. Uh, it's certainly a growing trend, particularly among those with uh, growing populations. So that's probably why you see uh, states like Texas uh, with a very dark blue. Uh, it's just this, the state um, has a very robust community college program um, and attracts a lot of students, not just from their local community, but around the region as well. Um, surprisingly enough, California does offer, there are a number of California community colleges that offer on-campus housing as well. Uh, there's approximately 11 uh, currently uh, that service uh, in that capacity. So you might be curious as to why community colleges offer housing. These are some bullets that we've collected over the years as we service community colleges across the country. Um, and so one of the reasons why uh, they go down this route is to really attract out-of-region and international students. Um, I think, uh, as one of your students mentioned, um, sometimes the, the commute time is, is, is often too, too great, um, and so to provide housing that's close to campus is, is also a great reason for providing housing. Um, but I will, I'll caveat that it's also providing affordable housing. Um, the, the third point here is, is actually an interesting one uh, when we engage with institutions. Some of the, 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 the drivers is really they're looking to diversify their, their revenue sources. As I mentioned, uh, all of the cash flows of the project go back to the institution and this structure, and the, that surplus cash flow can service um, the institution in a variety of other ways that they may not have realized in a traditional uh, manner. Uh, but I think most importantly, uh, why offer um, on-campus housing um, it's really about the student outcome. Um, there are a number of studies out there that, that, that support the, the benefits of on-campus housing in, in terms of increased retention, persistence, and graduation, which, is, which are obviously very, very important in, in the, the community college world, uh, particularly in, in actually in the state of California where students of um, community colleges have an opportunity to transfer to um, any of the four-year institute, public institutions of their choice. Um, and so... And I think that really supports uh, the last bullet that I have here in, in terms of on-campus housing does prepare uh, a lot of community college residents. Um, they, they do prepare them for their next step in their higher education journey, particularly as they transition into a four-year institution where uh, they may not necessarily have had a similar uh, student housing or student life experience. Um, so that was actually an interesting benefit that we hear um, over and over again. Uh, but very quickly, in terms of a path forward, um, this is just a rough sketch of how we envision working together in partnership. Obviously, this is our first pass, um, something that we would love to work through with you if we are uh, so lucky to um, have an opportunity to do that. Uh, but we just want to show you how uh, we can work rapidly together and make decisions to, to move forward. But I think what I want to highlight is really the most important thing is really the 90 to 120-day period where we really work hard to identify feasibility for the project not just in terms of what would make the project work, but in the context of what can your students afford and how do we back into a project that gets us there. And then, and then secondly, um, what are your students looking for and what are your stakeholders looking for? I thought it was interesting that one of your students mentioned um, potentially the, the opportunity for married students or, or, or students with family. That was actually something that I never really thought of. A lot of these uh, projects primarily focus on 
kind of traditionally aged students, but something that we want to definitely explore together um, as to how do we service that community as well. Um, and so for us, it's that first uh, three-month to four-month period really hammering in on those uh, feasible concepts. Josh, I don't know if there's anything you wanted to add to that. Uh, so that was it. You know, we just wanted to, to kind of give an overview and uh, happy to answer any questions from, uh, from the group. I have some. Marianne? So this is obviously very different from what any of us have any expertise with, so it's it seems very foreign, and I'm not quite grasping it. And I think that uh, one of my questions is, so it talks about a 32- to 40-year lease. Um, I hope the best for Balfour Beatty, and, but what if, you know, in 20 years you guys decide to go out of business? What happens to that lease? So uh, just one clarification. So the, the tax-exempt project, the ground lease would be with a 501c3 nonprofit. And so that allows the project to be tax-exempt and allows for cash flows to go back to the college. So the nonprofit would actually be a process by which the college would interview. There's several groups across the country that act as a 501c3. So in that capacity, they are the owner of the project for the long term. So as Sam was mentioning, we are the developer, so we're responsible for budget and schedule risks, for entitlement risk, uh, and delivery, and then we would operate the project uh, upon delivery. And where does your revenue come from? So our revenue comes from a development fee that's paid uh, at financial close. So we get a feasible project, we go through financing, we get the project designed and priced at financial close. Um, we're paid a development fee, um, and then... Balfour Communities, which is our sister company on the operations side, they would get an ongoing management fee uh, and be responsible for services uh, such as facilities maintenance, operations, um, residence life, billing, et cetera. Uh, and we're happy to, you know, we've looked at a number of different structures with colleges that um, have shared services. So, And then it, it said, it also said uh, on one of the slides, opportunity for purchase. How exactly does that work? So under tax exempt structure, uh, tax exempt bonds are issued by a condo and the 501c3. And sorry, I'm just going to raise that up a little bit so I'm not leaning down. Um, so bonds are issued through the condo at 501c3. And so uh, there's typically a, uh, a lockout period. But at that point in time, uh, you're basically paying par on the, of the bonds, the remaining outstanding debt of the project, if you were ever to want to purchase. Thank you. How are the management fees structured? So they're based on uh, revenue of, of the project. Um, we, uh, when we met with, uh, with Dr. Kraft and Mr. Parker, um, we went through this in a little bit more detail, but um, our fees are incentivized, so we have key performance indicators uh, as part of the project. So um, the student body as well as the administration rates us on how we're performing as an operator, and our, our fees are based on, on that. Here. During the PowerPoint, it's on, on the slide of a uh, path forward. It said decision-making in October. Uh, next month, are we deciding on student housing? Or was that just uh, a rough sketch? It would be a rough sketch. I mean, tonight is just informational. Yeah, um, for, for next month. 
um, it, it, we may bring it forward next month or the or the following month. Depends on as our, an action item uh, on tonight's conversation and and our conversations with them. And there, there's still some steps, right? Yeah, we still have some steps. Um, yes. Right. That, we have a reference place. checking portion that's yet yet to unfold, a, a complete reference, and then we'll dig into um, more questions that you have tonight. So I'm sure that we're not going to be able to answer all these questions or anything that might do, and we'll forward those over and do that do those passes. If if we move forward in a way that I think that that meets everybody's um, criteria, then we'll we'll bring it back to the board for action to enter in or or maybe an endorsement to enter into negotiations, which would be um, the next step. Thank you, Jennifer. I have two questions. Uh, my first one is: um, Can you tell us a little bit more about your process for determining interest and feasibility? Yeah, um, one of the things that actually is a requirement um, for taxes and financing is is what's called an independent market study. So it actually wouldn't be a market study that's conducted by Balfour Beatty. It would actually be an independent firm that is uh, that has been qualified by bankers across the country to be truly independent um, who are specialized in student housing. And we'll work with them to um, do the whole process of uh, community engagement uh, where we conduct focus groups with uh, key stakeholders as well as students. Uh, we also, as part of that process, hold a student survey to ensure that we can quantify the uh, the level of interest um, and splice that data to demographic groups that um, show the most interest. Um, and through that process, what um, they also do is is also look into the availability of uh, rental housing in the local community as well, um, in, in, in all spectrums, all price points, to really understand what is available to students and what are they living in right now. Um, and through that process, what ends up happening is they a lot of these firms have their own proprietary demand modeling um, kind of uh, program. And um, through that is where they would come with a recommendation as to what is the uh, projected demand for um, on-campus housing at uh, Napa Valley College. Um, and we'll work with them to um, identify what the unit types would be, at which price point, um, and things of that nature. My second question is, um, we've had a lot of conversation um, amongst ourselves here at the board about um, independent oversight and uh, how we would uh, incorporate that. Um, having a project manager or something of that nature that would kind of look out for the college but would not necessarily be connected with your uh, group. Do you, can you tell us a little bit about experiences that you've had like that working with other entities? Uh, I actually used to play that role. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, I, I, I can actually share a lot about that. Um, I think they, they certainly do play a great role in the process um, in terms of um, – Sometimes I think the, the best role is staff augmentation. Oftentimes uh, when institutions um, may not necessarily have the staff available or the time of, uh, for the staff who may have the expertise available uh, to, to participate in, in that kind of manner, we find that uh, those are oftentimes the, the best opportunities to engage those folks. Um, it certainly um, it depends on kind of which, which areas of expertise you are certainly looking at, whether it's on the finance side, it's on the construction delivery side. Um, you know, really, it really depends on where you find the the gaps that you think um, may be necessary to to ensure uh, your your voice is heard through the process. Can I, can I ask you to expand a little bit? I think that the key point, you know, in terms of the on point question, is Belfort Beatty in in 
as program manager protecting the interests of the district over the competing demands of what a construction firm might want? Or, you know, how does that, can you address that? Actually, Josh, you might be asking. Sure. Um, so, you know, at, at the end of the day, you know, the, the project doesn't get built unless it's feasible. And, you know, Balforbedia is, is not a, of the interest in, in building a project that's not feasible. We wouldn't be able to even get financing for a project that's not deemed feasible by a market study. And, and so that's kind of the first point. Um, we are aligned with the college in that, you know, we're not a equity investor in the sense of we're constantly trying to get an equity return year after year after year. Um, we're here to provide a service on behalf of the college, which really is that development manager role. We visited with um, with you in the in the interview and talked a little bit about the process that you guys have taken with other projects in bringing in a construction or project manager uh, within your staff uh, that helps to manage that. And so. Um, Really, a lot of colleges and universities choose this tax-exempt structure because it does align the, the developer with the college and not necessarily with um, with a profit center. Mr. Balvini. Thank you. I took a look on your, your uh, projects, excuse me, projects recently delivered slide in University of Texas Northside, so I just took a look at the website for that. I noticed retail because I can see awnings in your photograph. And looking at the retail, I see uh, delicious bubble tea and Johnny John's, et cetera, et cetera. Tell me how those uh, dovetail into the projects and how those uh, possible revenue streams work and whether that's desired or undesired. How do you come to those decisions? Sure. So, so kind of the same way we uh, we survey students, you know, we, we look at the, the retail market. And so it's something that um, – you know, when a, when a college introduces housing for the first time, it does become that 24-7 atmosphere. And so when students are living here seven days a week, they're going to need a place to eat. And so there's that simple uh, piece of that. But as it relates to the revenues, et cetera, that come in, that all still goes back to, to benefiting uh, the college. Um, there are some limits to, to retail under this tax exempt structure, given it's a retail revenue with taxes in general. So um, there's typically a, a taxable bond tail that's issued as part of the, the overall project. So, um, but they're structured just like a, a typical retail lease um, that would be owned by a, a you know a developer in, in town. So, did, did that answer your question? Yeah. Yes. Okay. And, and then I would have to ask about the pool in Florida. How does that? Uh, <laughs> how do you manage that it, with a lot of It's it's very popular um, with some institutions. You know. Um, Safety is, is always the number one goal of, of, of many colleges and universities. And so um, in most cases where there's a pool, it's operated by the private party and not the, the college and university because um, most schools do not want to take uh, the liability risk of that. But I will say that in student surveys, that's one of the top amenities along with fitness centers of, of what students are looking for. Um, but you know, as, as housing has transformed over time, um, you know, we're doing a project at Purdue University, and uh, there's no fitness center, there's no pool. Uh, all of the, the auxiliary space with the project is academically focused. Um, we'll have a faculty in residence as well as an entrepreneur in residence. So, uh, again, Purdue's a very uh, academically driven school, and so that's, you know, some concepts that might be important here at Napa Valley College uh, is looking at ways to integrate faculty and staff within the residential living environment 
uh, so students do have constant access, and, and there's a little bit of university or sorry, college oversight uh, in the project. So, Kyle. So my question is: so after at the end of the the lease, the 32 to 40 years, then what happens? So, great question. So um, within the project structure, uh, there are reserves set aside uh, as part of the financing. So it's a dollar per bed per year that's set aside so that uh, you're not getting deferred maintenance over time of the project. Um, you know, without having done design and construction feasibility yet of this, uh, you know, it, it's difficult to say in terms of um, whether it's going to be wood frame or steel, but... Uh, you know, the idea is that at the end of that 30-year ground lease, you're getting a project that's still going to have a life of, you know, 10, 20 years uh, after that. So after that 30 years, it becomes property of Napa Valley College, and you all can keep operating it. You can tear it down. It's, it's, it, but the, the reserves are set aside so that if you do decide to start over, if you want to put an academic building in there or whatever, it, you're not left with the bag and the bill saying, what do we do with this? So. Is it uh, generally a thirty-two to forty-year lease, or has it? Have you done shorter leases on them? Or um, traditionally, it's it's um, in the taxes and bond world uh, for for this type of structure. It's the the uh, the lease is actually coterminous with the debt, meaning whenever the debt is paid off, the lease expires. So, um, in the example of the question, one of the trustees asked on uh, paying off the the debt early. Uh, let's say at year 11 you pay off the principal of the debt, then the round lease expires and you guys own the facility. Um, so I, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's tr traditionally how it works. Um, in, in some states, um, they do ask for shorter leases. In Texas, we've done them for 35 years. Um, in in most instances, it's usually up to 40 years because uh, the, the investors like to see kind of a 10-year tail in the event th that you may want to refinance the debt just to extend the, the ground lease. We don't want to be, uh, leave you in a situation where the ground lease term expires, but you still have a considerable amount of debt to pay. I, th I think another thing, too, uh, you know, we, we provided uh, Mr. Parker and Dr. Kraft some additional documentation that it's probably more detailed than some people would want to read, but it's, it is if it, it is very important documents um, for, for you all to, to look at. And so, um, if there is more information you want beyond that, we're absolutely happy to, to give that to you. Um, again, these these uh, projects have been done, you know, hundreds of times uh, across the country, but uh, it's a very important to to have a, a good understanding of, of that financing structure. So, one more question. I was just curious um, if you have any projects that you've done in California. So within California, um, our investment and development experience relies on our military housing operations. So Vandenberg, Travis, and Beale are the three uh, operations that we have in California. Uh, as Sam mentioned, we've brought a partner with Brown and Mogavero, and they have a, a lot of experience uh, in, in California. And from, from our perspective, from the true development sense in that, delivering the project, dealing with local subcontractors and the market, um, you, you don't want to have anyone other than someone local. Um, the, the construction market is booming um, nationally, and so it's important to partner with groups that, that have those relationships, um, both in the general region but even all over the state and out of state because 
as the market grows, it's important to, to be able to get people to the job to, to build it. And uh, we were visiting with Brown Construction earlier today, and they made sure to remind us that they've never delivered late on a project. So um, that being said, you know, it, it's, uh, it's, it's an opportunity that we have experience with entitlements in, in California, uh, and we have partners that have delivered student housing in California. But uh, I will say every community college and university is very different in what they want to build. So uh, we look forward to shaping a unique community for, uh, for Napa Valley College. So. Anvir? I'll be quick. Uh, thank you for the presentation. As a student, I'm excited about having student housing here. My question is, uh, it might be too soon for this, what's the cost or range that would be a typical unit in this complex? Um, so probably too early to say, you know, we've, we've done some due diligence in the market, uh, relying on, you know, market reports that, that we have, um, and, you know, what we found was a average of, of roughly twelve hundred a bed a month was was in the market. Now, that is a non student driven market result, and so the important piece is not to study the overall Napa community, but study and do market analysis with the students that are going to be coming to Napa Valley College. And so, uh, affordability is key. And uh, when Sam said, you know, beginning with the end in mind, it's what can the project, what can students afford to pay, and that will then dictate what is designed and, and built. So we're absolutely sensitive to the affordability component of, of this project and the student body. Thank you. And, and, um, I'll also add that you know one thing that's also important in that process is not just looking at what's available in the immediate community, but also uh, what are other institutions in, in the state, particularly those that um, your students transfer to, what are they charging as well? Because um, the last thing we want to do is um, overcharge them here, and then they get a discount somewhere else. So uh, we're very cognizant of that. We'll definitely work towards making sure that that's, uh, that's in the forefront. Wonderful. Thank you very much. One last question. This is just out of curiosity. Why the London Stock, stock Exchange and not the New York Stock Exchange? I'm sorry. I'm so, what was the second piece? Why London and not? You said you were listed on the yes. London, yes. New York, or I'm sorry, London Stock yes. Exchange. Why not the New York? Uh, so, man, that is a great question. I wish I had a great answer for that. Um, so, yeah, Balfour Bay is a 100-year-old organization. They were formed and based in, in London. And so, um, I don't know, but that's a great question I'd like to ask of, of when I get back. So, Thank great. you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. 11.2 Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act. Dr. Kraft. Yes, thank you. Um, tonight I'd like to welcome Bruce Wilson, who's Director of Napa Lake Workforce Board. And um, Bruce also has a uh, presentation for us. Welcome, Bruce. It's been a while since you've been here. It's good to see you. Um, Marianne Mancuso, Trustee Mancuso, is also very acquainted and uh, serves as a as a board member. Hello. Hi, everybody. I'm Bruce Wilson. I'm the director, um, actually, of the new Workforce Alliance of the North Bay. And some of you uh, might know that the Workforce Alliance of the North Bay is the regional workforce development board for Napa, Marin, Lake, and now Mendocino counties. So uh, we're a regional workforce development board. I'd like to 
thank Mary Ann for inviting me out here and facilitating this conversation, uh, and thank you for having me as well. Um, so I'm here to talk about uh, basically opportunities that I think we have to partner and come up with innovative solutions in the realm of economic development, workforce development, and education. And I think as we partner more and more in the next few years, I think we're going to take quantum leaps for our career seekers, our business community, as well as our students. I'm going to talk about the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act. I'm going to talk about some of the uh, initiatives that we have with the new Workforce Alliance in the North Bay. I think it's important, though, to sometimes go back in time and see where we've come from in order to have a clearer picture about where we're going. Uh, this presentation has a, a number of pictures in it. And so with that, let me take you way back in time to an early um, unemployment office. Workforce development has been a part of the national lexicon since the New Deal era programs of the 1920s. Um, in the 1960s, we had the Manpower Development Act, uh, Kennedy administration. In the 1970s, we had the Comprehensive Employment and Training Act, which um, a phone call. Um, in the 1960s, we sorry, in the 1970s, we had the um, CETA programs. And in the 1980s, the CETA programs were more about uh, putting people in employment in public sector uh, jobs. So naturally, in the 1980s with the Reagan administration, we shifted out of that public sector employment and into more of a private sector-driven workforce development system. So as we go through these decades, we're, we're changing the way our national job training infrastructure is looking, and for good reason. So in the 1980s, we had the Private Industry Council uh, that came, on, came online, and it was, the Private Industry Council was a business-led private and public sector board. In the 1990s, we had the, um, the Workforce Investment Act, which brought on the career uh, centers, what we know as one-stop centers and now as American Job Centers. And now we have the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act. And I just want to highlight two words in that act, innovation and opportunity. So um, this, uh, this picture, these pictures, you know, I get a kick out of. This is actually an unemployment line that Al Capone, as I understand it, had put together in Chicago. Uh, the long and the short of it is that if we don't uh, take care of our unemployment um, if, of our uh, unemployment issues and our job training uh, needs in our communities, then somebody is going to fill that vacuum. The national job training infrastructure was designed to ensure that our that Americans were ready to work with marketable skills. And certainly, my organization, the Workforce Alliance, we're a pipeline for that. But if we're going to get the marketable skills, we need to be partnering with organizations, educational systems such as yours. Um, as we go through the years, it's important to have this job training infrastructure because there's always going to be someone or groups of people that are particularly hard, particularly hard hit by the twists and turns of the uh, national economy. So with the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, um, the question is what is the next big uh, improvement in the system? 
And I would submit to you that we need to build on those public and private sector partnerships. But also, if we're going to address the talent pipeline, not a single one of our organizations can do it alone. So in this uh, particular slide, you can see the connections between our educational systems, our economic development systems, our workforce systems. I think that those communities that solve that talent pipeline are the communities that ultimately are going to come out ahead, not just from a community standpoint, businesses all over the country are trying to solve that talent pipeline, and certainly uh, we are should be at the table as we do that. I certainly don't expect you to commit this graphic to memory. I only want to illustrate that while what we're doing is not um, brain surgery or rocket science, it, it's not necessarily easy work what we do. And so we need to be patient with ourselves and in our partnerships as we move forward. Uh, the connections between industry and career pathways and particularly these sector par public-private sector partnerships illustrated by the top there, which I'll zoom in here, are very important. Over the last year, the Workforce Development Board has been putting together these industry sector partnerships, really investing into these uh, demand-driven systems. A perfect, perfect example of an industry sector partnership is the Vintners Association. Imagine what happens when an industry comes together and speaks with one voice, how amplified that voice is. So that's what we are convening at the Workforce Development Board. We have the Hospitality Industry Partnership that has been running for uh, several months now. Uh, we've launched with our sister county in Solano County uh, the um, Healthcare Industry Partnership, and we also have a Healthcare Industry Partnership in Napa and um, Marin which we have recently launched. The long and short of it is we want to get the employers in the industry together at the same table as illustrated in this graphic. But not just having a facilitated discussion about what their needs are, not just from a workforce and education standpoint either. What are their needs? What are their barriers to productivity? We want to know all of those, all of those issues. And you can see at the... Um, edge of the table, if you will, the different community support partners that need to be there hearing what these industries are saying so that we can respond effectively to, uh, with regard to regulations or employment and training. This is the ground truthing that's, that's necessary to support the data that we come up with when we put together our programs, not just at the workforce level, but in the community colleges as well. We're not the, we're not the, we're not inventing this process. This is something that different states have had a great deal of success with. Colorado being one of those states, Arizona is another uh, state that has taken um, big steps with regard to industry sector partnerships. And what some of these folks are report, reporting out is that their, their productivity is going up. 41% reduction in turnover, 84% report significant increases in productivity productivity as a result of programs that are built based on specific employer needs. And that's really what's important. Some of those programs are job training programs. And when those job training programs are responsive to the specific industry needs, you can see the outcomes for workers. 48% of the participants exited poverty from programs that came out of this uh, type of dialogue. 
18% with higher earnings. So there are wins on both sides of the coin with regard to industry sector partnerships. So, um, I, again, we are doing that not only in our region, but specifically here in Napa County as well. And uh, Diana has been uh, very involved in this process and several other folks coming to the uh, table at these hospitality industry partnership meetings. We'd like to see that grow and grow and grow. Just a quick, this is not a surprise to anybody, uh, the connection between education and employment. The higher education you have, the less unemployment you're going to have. Uh, the less education you have, the less earnings you're going to have, and the higher unemployment. So that's not a surprise to anybody. The long and the short of it, though, is that our research is showing that um, those with only a high school diploma or less are stand little to no chance of making in, making it into the middle class. They need to have post-secondary education, which, again, is, um, is a critically important um, role that the community colleges and the workforce boards and economic development boards can play together, why we need to build um, more effectively on our partnerships. An initiative that... Uh, that I'm particularly proud of that we uh, recently built, um, innovative. I would, I would say it's built on a U.K.-based system um, that has a lot of uh, market share, if you will, in the uh, U.K., and it's been spreading internationally. We modeled our system, Bright Futures, on it. Uh, essentially, it's a match.com for teachers in K-16, through but, and for anybody, including yourselves, that uh, have a job, what we see is that uh, young people that have experienced five or more connections with someone in work uh, stand to make 18% more on average as young adults. Just two connections in their schooling uh, shows that there's 20% less, li less likely to be disengaged from education and training programs as they progress. And so why is that? Uh, so, anybody read Malcolm Gladwell? The, um, right? So uh, the opportunity, uh, access to opportunity and un understanding has a great deal to do with the decisions we make. So if we're arming our students, arming our young people with the uh, labor market information and the context for jobs, they can better make decisions about what classes they're going to be sitting in and also have the passion to see those classes through. So that's, that's part of the connection that we have here. So Bright Futures is something that I encourage you all to get involved in. It's very easy. We're asking for one hour, one hour of a volunteer's time, anybody that has work that's willing to talk to a young person in a in a uh, classroom setting in a one-on-one -on -one setting at a job fair. We heard a job fair come up. Get employers involved in the education system. Uh, it's pretty basic, and if you're a volunteer, you sign up with some basic information. If you're a teacher and you need a graphic design artist to talk to your class, you, you go to this system. That person will get pinged on their phone and be willing or not willing to come and talk to that class. Um. I'm going to hand out, I, I, my staff printed out some reports. Uh, we have access to a, 
Yeah, we have access to a ton of information. We use, we partner with economic modeling specialists, and I, I believe you do as well. Um, but the uh, the the long and the short of it is, we can look at the data in a pretty effective way and look at the completions in an, in a community. Com- Anybody that completes a, a post-secondary program is what I'm talking about. So if we're looking at job growth and we see that there's a need for 100 welders in the area, but then we look at the graduates that are coming out of our community and we see that there's only two graduates, well, there's probably room to expand that program. Um, so we're really looking at gaps. We can look at demographic data and see how old the uh, workforce is to t- see if we're going to be having a problem in the next uh, five to ten years. So those kinds of decisions um, and this kind of data, I think, will go a long way in our partnerships as we as we go. What what occupations require short term or more um, training? We'd like to work with you on that because we're we don't we're not in the business of actually the education system. We're the pipeline. We're trying to create a situation where our workers can go get more and more education. So you. D- these are just samples of different data points that we can get for you. We're investing heavily in career pathways. We are about to release a new career pathway network um, that is designed to lay out career ladders for occupations and all kinds of information about that particular occupation. This is fed by EMSI information. I'm very excited about this particular innovative, I think, um, opportunity for our uh, four-county area. Um, so I look forward to working with your staff on in this area. Finally, many of you know our one-stop centers. Now, this is the transactional part of what we do. We fund these one-stop centers. Uh, we put out about $3.5 million for uh, one-stop centers in our four counties just this year. Um, Right now, you know it as Workforce Napa. In Napa County, we have nonprofit uh, organizations that run our centers in Lake and Mendocino. Uh, We are about to rebrand this uh, one-stop center because, as the name suggests, we're getting more and more into the career um, investment. We're not just looking to connect people with jobs. We're looking to connect people into a career ladder, into a career that they can reasonably expect to move uh, in high, into higher and higher earnings with the additional skill sets that they get. So CareerPoint is about to be unleashed. You're kind of getting a, a sneak peek of our logo and where we're going. I'll leave you with this. Um, I said earlier that it's difficult for someone to come out of high school and just jump into uh, and have a, a, an opportunity to jump into the a middle class. They need the additional post-secondary training. If you're going to be an auto mechanic, you're working on systems and complex systems, whether it's the braking system or not, that have higher and higher regulations. We need that training. Uh, the, the, the things that these folks are working on, as illustrated by this picture, are much more advanced than what we put men on the moon for in the 1960s. So we need that additional training, and I think uh, Uh, we can partner together to make sure that we are finding out what the employers need, what our economy is actually uh, requiring, and we can work together to um, get that training in our communities. And so I'll leave you with that. If there's any questions, I'm happy happy to answer them.
Amy. More for, I guess, Dr. Kraft. I'm wondering, is are you already in discussion with this organization that some of these programs might be coming for the to the board for approval or? What's um, yes, we are very much in discussion, and, and Bruce, and we're part of the the, the process. Um, Diana as dean and uh, Michelle has been involved in this as well in her capacity. So we're I guess the best way to typify that is the college is is deeply engaged in the process, and Bruce is here tonight to kind of whet your appetite for that. Um, and so you, it wouldn't surprise any of us um, as we work closer together and, the, and those opportunities come to the board. Marianne may also have. Yeah, if I could, I'd like to just share one of our most successful stories, I think, is for both of us. I mean, our our psychiatric technician program is really one of our shining stars. Uh, People walk out of that program with a job before they ever even get to graduation. And I know that there have been times when... Uh, those candidates for that program to go into that program have come through this system and have gone full circle. And I think that um, what what is what I heard a lot at our conference last week is capturing that data is really getting better and better all the time to be able to say this person walked into career point. And um, ended up a graduate from the psychiatric technician program, and now they're earning X number of dollars. You know, it's it's like Cindy Waters said earlier. I love this quote. I'm going to quote it a lot. Allow people to enter the middle class. I mean, that's um, I get excited about it, but that's just one of the best examples I think of of how this whole connection goes how that whole process happens yeah uh, definitely the purpose of this presentation was to whet your appetite give you some context for the workforce development board and uh, from my standpoint the need to work together as we move into the future great thank you Okay, 11.3 has been removed by addendum. I was wondering why that item was removed from the agenda. Uh, I think the recommendation of the committee that was on that, I believe. Well, no, I, I was on that committee. Were? That was my guess. Not recommend that. This is the, this is the discussion reg- regarding the Prop 13. Because we, uh, I've been gone, so we haven't met. We wanted to talk about it again with the legislative committee in our next meeting. But we already voted to support it and move it forward. Well, we were also going to have, uh, we are going to reach out to our assemblymen and senators and have them come in, and I thought that this would be a good topic to discuss. Um, I just have a concern, the fact that we went through a process and we voted to move it forward. And so for one member to, outside of that process, has to be taken off is a little concerning to me. I don't think we took it off. I would like it to move forward like we voted at our meeting. I'm sorry, 
Obviously, well, it's it kept kind of tonight, not but at the now. next meeting, we voted okay. to move it forward. I'd like it to move forward. So please. it'll come back at the next meeting, and hopefully the committee will have met and be ready to move forward. Thank you. 11.4, a presence of legal counsel at Board of Trustee meetings. This is uh, my item. This was from a request uh, to have legal counsel present at all our meetings, available to answer, obviously, questions that, that come up during debate and, and um, you know, when we're considering things. Uh, Amy, do you want to speak a little bit to this? This was your request. And I have a little bit of information to share with everybody afterwards. Yeah. Um, yeah, I asked for this item to come forward. I, I for uh, several reasons, I think that, well, first of all, I know NVUSD and Vallejo Unified, City Council, Napa County Board of Supervisors, they all have their attorney present. And um, I, I think our meetings would run better, yeah, having answers to questions right on the spot. I think it would improve board relations. We wouldn't have to be trying to act like lawyers ourselves and challenging each other. We could just turn to our lawyer and have these questions answered. Um, so I think our meetings would run better. And I think it's insurance. I think I know there's a cost, but I think... Um, Having our attorney here to make sure everything is done um, legally and having them have a pulse on the community and the kinds of legal issues they're bringing forward is good insurance uh, to hopefully pre prevent legal problems down the road. Uh, and I think it would pay for itself. I think it's a lot cheaper to have our attorney here than probably the cost of one lawsuit. So um, I just think it's the best practice. And I would like to, well, one, hopefully have some information about cost. Um, but also I just uh, would like to put that forward for a discussion. So let me give you a little bit of information about the cost, and, um, and then we can get an idea from everybody else about how everyone feels about this. So I did speak to uh, our council about, you know, having them present, and the cost is basically they charge us by the hour. So uh, their hourly rate is 320 an hour, so that's for all the time they, they'd be here. Uh, the time they need to prepare, they're going to want to review the agenda and, and see what's on there so they have some idea of what they might be called upon to, to uh, discuss or answer questions about. And then, obviously, if we have follow-up questions, then after the meeting they may need to do some research or, or you know, get back to us on certain issues. So it can't tell you exactly what the overall cost is, but just on a single meeting, if we run four hours, three hours, is, is not <laughs> uncommon. Uh, it gives you a sense of, of what that, that costs. So uh, obviously it's something that we can do, but it's important for all of us to be aware of, uh, at least general, can't have the specific you know, hard number on what this is going to cost us, to be aware of that, uh, and I'd certainly like to hear from, from everybody if you have an opinion. Just one question about the cost first before you open it up. I'm, you were going to check into the cost of having our attorney versus one of her staffers. Well, that's actually, it's not a staffer. It's um, There's a little bit of, actually, it could be more expensive. She has a semi-retired partner, still works with the firm, uh, that actually lives in Napa, that uh, could be the person who is assigned to, to this. Um, so there's a little bit of savings, actually, in travel, because they would 
charges for travel if they're coming from their office in San Francisco or wherever they might live in the Bay Area. So in that sense, there's a little bit of, of savings there, but that's in general, you know, the cost, the hourly rate. So do you mean to say that the hourly rate for that individual would be the 350 as well? 320. Or 300. Okay. Yeah. And, the, and there isn't any, there aren't any cheaper people in their firm? Well, then we'd have, they, they could try, well, they wouldn't have the experience necessarily to be able to deal with the sorts of things that come up here. And actually our counsel, Laura, told me they, they didn't have junior uh, members of the firm that could really handle something like this. Um, so her suggestion, other than her or another partner, uh, that would incur more more fees uh, is that they do have this semi-retired partner here, Napa, who still works with them and has the experience. So it sounds like to me um, ballpark with prep and the time at the meetings somewhere around could be $2,000 per month. So uh, that seems costly to me. I don't know that, I mean, we always have Laura there, our attorney there, to reach out to if something questionable happens during a meeting, to consult with after a meeting or pre-meeting if we know there's something we need some expertise on. Um, but I don't I don't see during our meetings, it might be a parliamentary process that we may have some disagreement on during a meeting, but I don't know that it's really a full-blown legal opinion that's needed on much of our subjects. Am I wrong in saying that? Well, there's a lot of, uh, you know, I have a lot of notes I'm just scratching and down here. So uh, I, I guess that it would be interesting, just in, as a kind of a free thought. You know, I'm just I'm just kind of free floating here a little bit. Yeah, it would be interesting to have your expectations of what an attorney would do here. You know, um, parliamentarian versus expertise versus procedure. One attorney, there is no generalist in education who could answer the variety of questions on public policy, facilities, finance, labor negotiations. You know, Senate issues. I mean, it, it's just a, a body of knowledge. That's why they generally have a larger partnership. Also, I would advise the board going real time to an attorney who's going to opine at the moment is not going to happen. They're they're not going to give you on the spot a definitive answer. Depending on the question you ask, they'll answer the question. But I would think. Um, I'm trying to think of, an, uh, of a specific that we might actually drill into that would help. I can you know? give you the examples of times it would have been good to have an attorney present if you'd like. Sometimes where legal questions came up that we spent a lot of time arguing that we could have just turned to our attorney and asked and they could have answered it right then and there. Do you want me to give you a few examples? I don't think an attorney is necessarily going to prevent a lawsuit either. I mean... Okay, so two, if, if, based on what Marianne just said, 2000 a month, that's uh, times $12,000, $24,000 per year. We spent $23,000 on legal fees just this month. I, I don't know on what because we don't really get like an annual review on what our legal services are going for. But, um, you know, at one point on our closed session agenda, we had seven potential litigation cases. 
I perhaps I don't know. Perhaps having somebody here, knowing what was going on, we, those could have been prevented. I don't know because I don't know what they were. But the point is, is that I think it's good insurance. I've been to city council meetings and county supervisor meetings, and yes, they do answer. They turn to them and they ask for legal opinion, and they turn around and they answer. And um, I, I can think of several cases where it would have been a benefit to have our attorney here. And I don't think twenty-four thousand is actually that much. I mean, we drop seventy thousand for a survey. And don't think anything of it. So to have twenty-four thousand to have legal representation at every board meeting, I think, is a good investment. I ask, Mr. Chair, for like a straw poll. I just want to kind of hear what you guys think. Um, well, I, one thing I want to say about the city council and board of supervisors: those people are in-house, full-time. You know as far as the Board of Supervisors are, for the county, county council it's there. county council that works for them. It's not an hourly fee. It's their well, That's true of Napa, but it's not true of every municipality. Not every municipality, but using the example I just heard, it is true. So that, that you know. And NVUSD and Vallejo Unified have attorneys present at their meeting as well. I can see the expedience, the um, efficiency, and the and perhaps in the in the interpretation or translation of what's developed here to to formulate a question and get it to the attorney and back. Uh, there might be some some savings. Uh, I, I'd be interested in exploring it for a fixed period of time, like three or four months, or maybe as long as six, uh, to see the cost benefit. Uh, we, we, it's not new to this board. We've we've done it in the past. However, there were circumstances that that uh, surrounded um, and everyone unique, and 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 this is a completely different board. So it it, it, it might be worthy of exploration. And here, in open session, what would be a situation where an attorney's opinion would be necessary? Well. Legal questions do come up at times. Um, I, I, I don't have one uh, off the top of my head. I'm sure Amy does. <laughs> okay, so very early on when I was on the board, we had a, a large discussion about whether board members could post items on social media. And some one board member said that we couldn't. And actually our attorney later came forward and said we could, that we have freedom of speech, that we can post uh, opinions on social media. We didn't need to have that argument. That's just one example. The Menlo property, we almost put that on the market without advertising it to all the different public entities. Um, we had to undo a resolution and do a new resolution to do it properly. That all could have been avoided. So there's just we're approving contracts all the time. We've sold properties. We're in, right now we're talking about campus housing, a bond. These are serious issues, and... Um, I think it's, it protects the college and it protects us as individual board members to have our attorney present. Any other, Jennifer? Um, two things, really. I, I, I don't know that I feel like we need an attorney here all the time, but I also don't feel like $24,000 is a lot of money. It, I mean, it sounds like a lot, but, you know... It, That's it, not necessarily it, a cost. We don't know. Yeah, I mean, it, we don't know. But if we were going to ballpark it, I, I, it's just, it's, I don't feel like that should be a stumbling block to doing our jobs right. I kind of feel um, 
I'm kind of uh, citing here with uh, Trustee Baldini, you know, that perhaps it's something we could try and see if it's if it feels like it, it adds or if it's uh, of a benefit. And, and if we determine after a few months that it's not, then we can revisit and see if perhaps there's another means of getting the same type of service without necessarily having uh, an individual be present. I think there's a couple of different options, but I think it, that if the board is open, I would support having at least on a trial basis. Sarah? Uh, I'm the newbie here. Is our legal counsel, it's not solely for board members, right? I'm sure they deal with issues such as bonds and housing and, and maybe, you know, $78,000 for legal fees. Maybe that's, that's where it's going. We, we have several council, we have several um, district councils that we rely on for different um, different aspects of the of the question. So there are legal experts on in civil, and there are contract experts. There are generalists in labor law um, who are different than the public policy and finance experts. Um, so generally, you look for a larger firm. Our present LCW, Laura Shulkin, um, you know, has a pretty deep um, bench, if you will, and she's got a lot of expertise. Most in a lot of transactional. I guess my my just as long as I have the four just for one side my my comment would be if it if it I don't think you should look at this as a either or the the twenty two or four or five thousand that it would cost for the person to sit here will not avoid any of the other necessary legal costs that are incurred they're unrelated um, so if we have a risk analysis issue or a labor issue or an investigation that's ongoing they're unrelated. So, you know, the attorney here, I don't know. I mean, you know, so I just don't want you to, to confuse those issues. We we definitely probably would not address the issue that came up the, the following day to the attorney that happens to be here that night because they're, they're going to be a junior attorney. And well, I don't know what else The person that she's talking about in Napa is not a junior attorney. Yeah, well, I guess my yeah. I, she was I, a partner in the firm, mm-hmm. and she's now semi-retired. So. Mm-hmm. Right. No, but I, I understand what Ron is saying that that there are some issues that come up for the district that, that require specialists uh, to deal with, and it's not going to be sitting here, whoever that is. Okay. Well, I think um, with all that, I may want to uh, ask her a few more questions. Um, and also consider kind of the budget. Where does this come from? Would the budget need to be amended to add so, the service? Do we know? That it's not in the budget on that line item. It would be, it would, if it were so directed, Bob, you can just help me, this is going to come out of general funds out of some other direction. So if we were looking at um, doing this as a pilot um, for a few months to determine how much it actually costs per month and what uh, the benefit is, what benefit is derived from that, that would not be something that would necessarily require a, a an amendment to the budget. You know, if we're if we're talking about a, a pilot that ends up costing eight to ten thousand dollars, there's enough give in the in the budget to do that 
if the determination was going forward this costs us five thousand dollars a board meeting but we really want to do it at every board meeting that's significant enough that we need to look we would need to look at adjusting the budget okay thank you with yeah. that I'd like okay, to I can, um, can I just make one last comment okay, last comment yeah I just just kind of I feel like we're moving in the right direction as a board. We have the video up with timestamp minutes. I feel like we're elevating. The board's been elevated, and I think it would be just take us to that next level of being a high-functioning board that's on par with all of these other public institutions. So just hope people will really consider it. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, there's a couple of questions that I want to talk to the attorney about. One, that we could do kind of a trial period if we decide to do that if they're willing to do that, as opposed to say, okay, we want, you know, a contract to do a year or something. Um, so I will kind of come back to, to the board with some, some information on that. Thank you. 11.5, the annual report auxiliary organizations. Hi. So hello board and thank you and this won't be as exciting as career pathways or housing but it's near and dear to my heart. <laughs> um, to be clear this is not the formal annual report that we discussed last month and um, we'll be getting into sort of why that is as I progress here. In August the um, California Community College's Chancellor's Office released a new Bible for auxiliary organizations. And, excuse me, it has um, kind of changed the way we think about certain certain elements and caused us to review some documents and make some changes. Oops. Sorry. As just sort of a review, um, the two auxiliary foundations of the district kind of engaged in a really wide variety of activities. Um, and for the last couple of years, we've been formalizing their activities, wrapping our arms around what they need, um, where the uh, compliance requirements are, and these are just some examples. So three areas of obvious in the last six weeks of us digging in, um, areas where clarification, increased efficiency, and sort of simpler approaches um, have emerged are uh, reporting structure and timing, the way we identify the areas of service and contracts, and um, how we're thinking about the use of public relations activities and funding. For reporting structure, um, and I think this is easily Bob's favorite change, <laughs> uh, the annual report due to the Board of Directors was in September and has now been moved to six months after the close of the fiscal year. So um, this aligns with other district financial reporting. Did you have a comment on that, Bob? Sure. I just wanted to say that this does 
um, as Carolee said, this aligns the requirements for an auxiliary organization with the requirements for the district as a whole. And so the district is required to submit an audited financial report by December 31st, which would be six months after the close of the fiscal year. And so in the past, the expectation for the auxiliary organization was that the report would be prepared before that deadline, which means that it was highly unlikely and, in fact, is not the case this year that the audited financial statements would be available at the time that the report was due from the auxiliary organization. So this just, it from the uh, State Chancellor's Office perspective, it lines the auxiliary organization up with the rest of the institution. So we could have done a partial annual report, but we wouldn't have had final financials. They're kind of a big piece of the final report. Um, we looked at the templates for the master agreement with our legal counsel, and in the um, in the manual, there's a very short three-page master agreement. It's it's lovely, but it didn't quite cover everything our legal counsel wished. So. One of their recommendations was that we identify the services offered by each foundation with the same language as Title V. And so this list is the eligible activities for a foundation. Those in orange are the activities that our foundations engage in. So that later in the agenda, there are uh, the master agreements on the consent calendar, you'll see the, these lists in various forms on each agreement. And probably our biggest challenge and biggest opportunity is um, how to account for and maximize the eligibility of 50% reimbursement by the foundation to the district in the form of public relations programs and activities. So, um, when the Writers' Conference advertises that they are the Napa Valley College 35-year established nationwide Writers' Conference, we can benefit from that, and that has to be part of the equation of the relationship between the two entities. So Bob and I met today with Joe and came up with some possible formulas related to actual expenditures, but we're still kind of trying to figure out the intangibles and how, how to move forward with that. So um, in six months, more information will be coming your way. Yes. So is that the law that 50%, only 50% can be in the form of non-monetary contributions? Is that where that comes from? It's like Ed Code or something? T yes, yeah. Title Five, I believe. Yeah. Carolee, I do have a question about that, and I had actually planned to ask it later, but now since we've brought it up. Um, so I, I get that that hasn't been determined yet, and it sounded, you know, from reading the contract or agreement that it would um, be something that was done on an annual basis or something, but is would it be reported in detail as part of what you bring back to um, our board? You know, like, like how you determined that this was worth X amount of money? Or, or at least an, an itemized. This was determined to be. Am I making sense? <laughs> yeah. So, 
What we talked about today was identifying PR activities in, in the chart of accounts and the budget, um, and then having a sum that you could take a 50% calculation of at the end of the quarter or end of the year. Um, but we wouldn't typically report line item expenditures to you in our budget reports. So, um, it, but we we could potentially include that as a um, uh, note to the financial statements in the annual audit. So to uh, quantify what those uh, 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 what those contributions were and how we calculated that. And so this review has kind of, um, uh, in addition to the master agreement, got us looking at the administrative regulations, which are sort of the procedures that accompany the board policy on auxiliary organizations. You have a second reading of the policy and hopefully adoption tonight. Um, and the rules are under review by the Council of Presidents. Yes, ma'am. About the um, one of the things I had a concern about, um, I actually asked for it to be on the agenda a while ago, and hoping it will come forward is the bylaws because those were created in 2013. I saw a bunch of things in there I had concerns about. Is that something that's being reviewed, and will that be coming forward again? Is that part of the big review, the bylaws? Yes, I, we would probably look at those next. Um, that's a the requirement for those are corporate, but yeah, okay, definitely. And do you have any questions, particularly about the master agreements? I have a couple, yeah. Um, in one of them we just covered, I'm going to see if I can get to them. Um, the part that was about going into contracts and lease agreements up to five years, um, is, is, was that based on, what, what is that, where does that come from? Um, that was to delegate authority to the board chair, the president, to approve um, what we call sort of long-term leases, but they're not really. They're, you know, a long-term lease would be like we rented a building for a year to someone. It's more like our arrangement with Festival Napa Valley, where they came in for a month and they had an academy and, a you know, a festival and a, uh, a meeting and a party and and. Because of um, legal's interpretation of the no obligation of district facilities by an auxiliary, mm -hmm. um, we had to bring that to the board. And if we have to bring all of those arrangements to the board, it's, it's going to be kind of an impediment. Uh, so that, that bit of language allows Ron and the board of directors to have the authority to enter into that arrangement. I guess I, the, the five-year um, chunk just kind of was like that seems like an awfully long amount of time I'm just wondering if there's an example of something that you can give us that where that would be used versus coming to the board um, well I, maybe it should be a little clearer but it wouldn't be a five co continuous year rental but the contract might be for five years so with Festival Napa Valley we're, we're doing a pilot for three years um because, it, you know, it's an investment on both sides um, of time, energy, and learning curve. So we, it didn't, uh, didn't make sense for a one-year. So that 
that contract for three years gives them the the right to have their their event that month, whatever. They're going to have that space for a month Correct. each year. Correct. They're not going to have it for the three years running. Correct. Um, and it might also cover um, the Silverado's Baseball League, where they're renting a ball field for a couple of months in the summer, um, putting up some concessions. Um, so they might you, have the right to do that for five years every August and whatever. Exactly, exactly. How do we, because in the language it doesn't distinguish that. It doesn't distinguish between, you know, something happening once a month for five years and a five-year consecutive rental of a space. So We would probably need to revise that. Um, that would seem to be in the, the actual agreement with Silverado Baseball or the Napa Valley, you know, whatever. Not, not every, this language. I don't think it's going to cover those specific situations. You have to have a specific agreement for each one of those, right? And this just prevents you from doing anything longer than five years. Correct. So it, I'm hearing that it needs to be more specific. And well, specifics would be in the actual agreement with whatever organization is using. Right. But the authority for Ron to approve. You can't approve anything more than five years. Yeah, this is. I think it's good. It's to that policy specific AR issue. The policy is broad. The specifics then are in the actual agreements that detail it. If there were something that rose to a level of everyday usage for five years of something or something or some major thing, you you you'll be assured it's going to come this direction and also work its way through probably many stakeholders because it has a broader implication. You you couldn't possibly put in this document every single scenario that might come up along the way, right? No, I could not. <laughs> Nor could Carolee. Carolee may, but she'd have to start working on it now. <laughs> Do you have the section that that's in, Jennifer? I do. It's section 7, real property. Is that the one we're talking about? No, that's, sorry, that's a different one. It's um, Section 8. So one of the functions of an auxiliary that's allowed is facilities or equipment rentals. And this just allow, you know, delegates to Ron that he can enter into those. But perhaps it should be... I, yeah, I, I guess... Of agreements up to five years, rental occupancy of up to a month. If that makes sense, I guess I'm 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 not understanding how it because it's it, the way it reads to me is that it doesn't need Ron's approval. Well, in this case, it, um, a good point for an attorney being here. Um, <laughs> the the interesting piece of this is the um, the district really in this case is me um or it's this does not read the board i mean so this this would not be coming to you what what the essence of this is, is they do not want an independent uh 501c3 auxiliary doing something contrary to the district to which it belongs um mission and so this is a this is a, a guide in that if as it as it as it is 
know, there's a lot of other policies and places and, and um, protections against that. But it, it basically puts us at least a limit there for you to see. But does it require your authorization or not? It does. It does. Because that's, that's not, um, maybe I'm just reading it wrong, but it sounds to me, this is without the prior written approval of the district, except that the district de- delegates to the foundation the authority to enter into blah, blah, blah. That to me sounds like they can do it completely independently. Yes, except the bylaws call out the college president, whoever that might be, the superintendent president, to be the chair of this foundation. Yeah, the, the president is the yeah. foundation. So, you, so you've got to double check. You're always you're always in a check position, right? But even so, so, even if you're a chair, you can't be outvoted on this on the foundation. If they want to keep their jobs, no. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm being a little flipped, but the answer is no. We would bring it if it was that divisive or that you know that the 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 board would look at it. If it, if it rose to that level, where I really didn't feel I wanted to bring it. I would. There's got to be some major reason, you know that you know it's got it's something. I don't know what it might be, but it would certainly rise to your level. I would start bringing it to other constituents. They want to convert them. I I would maybe feel better if. It said that we delegated the that de- did delegate it to you because so I feel like we can maybe delegate things to you. I don't know if we can delegate things to the foundation, but I still have concern about five years and it being so open ended because it it does lend itself to renting out a space for five years and without any kind of board approval. So I don't know. I just think it should be looked at. Well, I think we could revise the language to say that the agreement could be up to five years duration. And the rental term could be no more than six months. Whatever baseball needs really is the longest <laughs> we need. Um, Festival Napa Valley. Yeah, again, I, want, I just want to go back and maybe Bob, you're wonderfully adept at these things. However, um, I could, as CEO of the district, enter into a more than five-year agreement now. So can we say that we delegate me. this to you to the well, president? Well, I know, but I'm no, but I, I already have that authority. So this is about the foundation, not me. So what you don't want is an, an is a is the auxiliary entering into these without some limit, right? But because of the of the checks and balances we've done, having the president superintendent as the chair, even you've ensured your position that the foundation is not going to run amok here and and do something. So that's really the check and balance here. And our legal counsel reviewed this. Yes. Okay, kind of same similar question is um, in the old contract uh, under real property, the old contract said, let's see, the auxiliary shall not enter into any transaction concerning purchase, sale, lease, rental, or real property without the prior approval of the superintendent. Now it says the foundation should not enter into any contract or other business arrangement involving real property, um, at least involving payments of more than 25000 per year and duration in terms of more than one year of purchase without prior approval of the superintendent. So I'm just wondering about the reason for the change in that section. I believe those, well, they either came out of the new template from the chancellor's office or they came from legal. And that's just an update on how they're approaching this matter. Instead of having it be a blanket, anything has to 
be brought to the board, there was a limit delegated to the superintendent. Well, so before it was, it wasn't the district, it said the district superintendent, and now if it's under a certain amount, it doesn't have to go to the district to superintendent, so again, it's delegating it to the foundation. Seems like both of them kind of take some something away from the, either the district or the superintendent and delegate it to the auxiliary board. Well, the the superintendent president, that's part of the structural clarification that has come out in the manual, is is the oversight body for the auxiliary. It's not the board of trustees. The foundation submits its reports and its annual budgets to the superintendent president for approval. If he approves it, it gets moved on to the district's um, greater structure. Um, so I think that's just what's reflected here. Under the... Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm not seeing an issue as to how it's written, but maybe that's my misunderstanding. It just seems like one of them, the one on... The one takes away kind of power from the board and puts it onto the foundation, and the other takes it away from the president and puts it onto the foundation it's board. Actually, I think Ron explained in that first one where it says district, it's not us, the board. It's Ron. So there's, there's a language inconsistency here that's, I think, creating part of this problem. And, and what Amy is saying, in my opinion, it, it, it is right. There's authority being delegated from Ron to the foundation to be able to do these things to, with these limits without having to come back to Ron, although Ron is the foundation, essentially. I, I think <clears throat> seven is for the foundation to go out and rent an office somewhere, and they can't do that without Ron's approval. Yes, there are. I'm, I'm sorry. Sorry, eight, actually, we do have a legal opinion that obligate the district's facilities, equipment, or personnel has to come to the board. And so eight is a modification of that to delegate some of those powers to Ron as the board chair of the foundation. So real property isn't them. They have nothing to sell. They don't own anything in the district. Um, they could manage a lease. And then eight is to do the management of the lease. But they... They would have to go rent property under seven. No, Does right. I understand sense? that, but I think there's some language, uh, some confusion being caused by the different terms that are used in each it, one. Of these yes, things. and it might be that that could be revised. Yeah. I just had one last question. Um, the, the other difference I noticed between the old and the new was taking out the activities reports on the old contract. It said that by you know, once a year that the, the Auxiliary Foundation needed to provide this report um, of the cost of the facilities and services provided to the district. So is that being taken out because they have to do that anyway through the audit? Or why was that taken out? So uh, no we, do, we were told we would get like an accounting of, you know, not only their activities, but like what was reimbursed to the district. Um, is that because that's part of the audit now? It will be part of the financials and the audit, and it is no longer recommended as a separate item by the chancellor's office. Which is good. Okay. 
Yeah, and, I, and, I, and I'll just say, good work. I, I appreciate this. The, the reason that the, the new manual really came out is the kind of this evolve, you know, that it's um, this business is getting more complicated and auxiliaries are much more engaged than they used to be. So every, literally every community college in the state has an auxiliary now. Most of them are tracking what, what um, we're kind of doing as well, you know, bookstore, cafe, other kinds of things. And I think their their goal here really is to protect the district from arbitrary foundation growth um, without any checks and balances. And, and again, we saw this coming down the pike, so we created bylaws at the get-go defining our directors as um, – me and other senior leaders, which protects the the district from that, and also including a board member on um, on that board of directors. Well, actually, well, I'll bring that up, I guess, because we're also talking about the policy. But since you brought it up, um, well, no, I'll save it for when we go over the part the policy when we look at the policy. Any other questions? I think that's it. Thank you. 11.6, first reading of the new revised or to be repealed board policies. Anybody opposed? Okay, let's sit. Take a break. And we can, are you taking the cake home or should I bring it out here for people? <laughs> bring it out. Okay, we're bringing chocolate cake out too, so there's some over there. It'll be here in a second. <clears throat> we'll be there. <laughs> 